Our song of encouragement this morning will be number of my heart. Well, a very pleasant good morning to each one of you. My Bible is open to the passage that our brother Don read for us as we began our assembly this morning, and I would invite you to open there again at this time to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we will be studying from uh, this morning. If you have lived very long, and perhaps even if you haven't lived that long, you may have heard the old saying that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that saying has survived to this day, I think, because it is a true saying that surely if we do not take the time at points in our life to look back to things that have gone on before, even perhaps we were alive in this world, we in some way will be doomed to repeat the mistakes of history. While circumstances and cultures change certainly over time, we know for the most part that human nature does not. And so if we are going to be wise people as God encourages us and instructs us to be as we read His Word, we will be good students of what has already been so that as much as possible we can avoid the failures of the past so that we do not repeat them again. And I believe this is especially true when it comes to biblical history and when it comes to thinking about what is said to us in the Scriptures about God's people of old and Yes, we can certainly learn a lot of lessons on the positive side from those folks who have walked before us, but so that we do not repeat their same mistakes, we do not go down the same path that they often went down, and we do not experience the spiritual failure that many of them experienced. Because if we don't learn what Scripture teaches us about God's people that have gone before us, we will likely commit the same sins that they did, and thus we will experience the same consequences that they often experience as a result of their sins against God. What I want us to do this morning for our time together in study of God's Word is to heed history's warnings. And I want us to do that by looking at four events in the history of Israel, God's people of old. And as we look at the history of Israel to learn just four warnings that they contain for us today today. And we're going to be looking at this passage again that our brother Don has already read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, looking specifically at this section, verses 7 through 10, in our time together in study of God's Word. The first warning that Paul brings to the Corinthians' attention and brings to our attention this morning is found in verse 7 where he says to us there, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. You know, out of all the recorded instances of Israel's idolatry throughout the Old Testament, we can just find a number of instances that we could consider this morning along these lines. But the Apostle Paul, it seems, chose perhaps the most well-known of all of those to serve as a stark warning for us, and that is the incident that we refer to oftentimes as the golden calf. And so I want us to go back in our Bible this morning as we will be taking these warnings from the words of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10, but then to look back at that particular account and and the events that were happening at that time in Israel's history to remind ourselves exactly what they were doing and to not go down that same road. So turn with me, if you will, in your Old Testament 
to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, and let's just read here. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but let's read the first six verses of this chapter. And the writer says to us here, beginning at verse 1, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Although Israel on this occasion was asking Aaron to make this golden calf, this golden God, Although Israel was saying on this occasion that this golden God was really the God, he was the power uh, that was responsible for bringing them out of Egyptian bondage. And although Aaron said that their worship, as you notice, as we just read here at verse 5, he says as he is making this golden calf and, and putting it, uh, building an altar to the Lord and saying tomorrow there shall be a feast to the Lord. Although the, the Israelites are saying that this golden God is the God that has brought us out of slavery and Aaron is saying, well, let's proclaim a feast to the Lord tomorrow. Israel was offering worship to an idol. They were not truly worshiping Jehovah God in the way that God had instructed them to do. We remember, I think, back to the first of the Ten Commandments when God just began to give the law to Moses there in Exodus chapter 20 that the first of those commandments is you're to have no other gods before me. And here are those who are God's called people and they are doing this very thing on this occasion because they have become impatient. They say, we don't know what's happened to Moses. We don't know if he's returning or not. They wanted to see something that they could touch, something that they could feel, something that they could look at to be their God. And as a result of this idolatry on this occasion, not only did the anger of God burn, as you read here on in the chapter, which we won't take the time to do this morning, but not only did the anger of God burn against His people Israel, not only did Moses' anger burn against Israel, but about 3,000 men died in one day at the hands of their fellow Jewish brethren, the Levites. And so as we skip down some here in this chapter, at chapter 32, beginning at verse 25, notice uh, what takes place here. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had, led them, uh, had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. A terrible consequence, not only for those who were involved in this idolatry, for those Israelites who were among those who said to Aaron, 
uh, here, take our, our gold and you make a golden calf so that we can have something to worship, something visible, because we, again, don't know if Moses is coming back or not. But it was not only a terrible consequence for those who were involved in idolatry. Think about how terrible it was for the Levites to have to take up these weapons and to kill their fellow Israelites. The consequences were great because they were idolaters. And you might think, as we think back here to what the Apostle Paul says, and as we are reading this account back in the Israel's history back in Exodus chapter 32, that yeah, but those, that was then, and we are living in a different time now. Yes, people back then, the Israelites and certainly all the foreign peoples that were living around them, they, they were in the habit, that was kind of their custom. And even as you come to New Testament times, that there, there were people who were physically making these statues of wood and gold and silver and building all of these elaborate temples and, and monuments and edifices to false gods, to idols. But, but we are advanced people today. We, we don't have a problem with that today. But let me ask you this question. Do we have idols today? That they may not look like the idols of old, that they may take on a different form, a different shape. But I would say as we think about that particular question, especially in our country today, that yes, we do very much have idols because an idol really is anyone or anything that replaces God. It is anyone or anything that kind of cap captivates our minds. It is something or someone that really drives our desires in life. It is someone or something that motivates our actions as we live every day. It is anyone or anything that we decide we're going to worship and we decide that we are going to serve, that we are going to devote ourselves, our time, give our money to, spend our talents on, that we are going to be devoted to, that is going to be the driving force in our life every day. While the idols of our day perhaps are idols of the heart, more so than a graven image that has been made with hands, I don't think we have to look very far. And most of us can just look at our own lives, to be very honest, and to see that idolatry is very much alive and well in the time in which we live, in the culture in which we live. And therefore, I believe this warning of Paul is he is giving the warning specifically to this church here at Corinth, many of whom had come out of that kind of environment. Man, all of these Christians were still living in that kind of environment just in the city of Corinth being a very idolatrous city. But so many cities that the gospel went to in the first century world were full of idols. You might remember there in Acts 17 when Paul went to the city of Athens that before he got to preaching, he was just walking around the city observing that there was so much idolatry taking place here in his spirit, Luke tells us, was provoked within him. And he got to preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the warning is still applicable, I believe, to us today. And that is this, that we do not need to be idolaters. We need to take a warning from the page of Israel's history. And we need to see where that particular action leads. And if we place someone or something in our life before God, that there are going to be consequences and often very severe consequences that we and even others will experience as a result of that sin. Therefore, we too, in the words of the Apostle John at the very end of his first epistle in 1 John 5 and verse 21, we too must guard 
against idolatry. It's been interesting to me for a number of years to think about that book of 1 John and to think about the, the greatness, the grandeur of that little epistle as John just tells us over and over again, this is how we can know, this is how we can know, this is how we can know that we are a true follower of, God, of, of Christ, a true child of God. This whole book about love and God is love and we are therefore to love one another. And at the very end of all of that great discussion, he says just very simply in chapter 5 and verse 21, Therefore, guard your hearts against idolatry. They were living in that culture, and we live in the same culture today. And we can guard our hearts against idols that we experience today by fleeing idolatry. As Paul goes on to say here in this very text that we are considering this morning at verse 14, his conclusion to really it seems all of what he has said up until this point in this chapter is, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Get as far away from that as you can. Put as much separation between you and idols as you can. Make sure that all of your heart has been given fully and completely to Jehovah God. Don't be idolaters. That is the warning that we need to learn from history, first of all, from this text. The second warning for us is found here in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and that is to not act as immoral people. He says at verse 8, Let us not act immorally as some of them did, some of the Israelites did. And 23,000 fell in one day. I, I generally like the New American Standard Version. I know that in this congregation there are Christians here who are reading all a uh, uh, number of, of different versions. I know a lot of you like the ESV. Uh, I like the ESV in many places. Some of you read from the New King James, maybe the NIV, uh, other modern translations. But one thing I don't like, just personally about the New American Standard, is places like this in chapter 10 and verse 8, and there's some other instances in the New Testament, where it translates the Greek word into the word immoral or immorality. Uh, really, the Greek word that is translated immorality here in the New American Standard, I think should be better translated as it was in the version that Brother Dom was reading, I think from the New King James this morning, sexual immorality or fornication. And that really gets to the heart of, I believe, what Paul is describing here, that it's not just immorality in general, but it is immorality of a specific kind, that being a sexual sin. Uh, while in a literal sense, this word does describe for us sexual sin, in a figurative sense, it can describe idolatry, what we just talked about. And as you think about those two things, about fornication or sexual sin, uh, uh, involve, being involved in uh, uh, sexual activity that is outside of the boundaries that God has given us in marriage. And as you think about idolatry that we just talked about, both of those two sins, both of those two concepts are often connected in Israel's history. And I don't know if Paul is making that connection for us here between verses 7 and 8 or not, but certainly that connection is made in the Old Testament. But in the example that Paul seems to be citing here at verse 8, Seemingly both of these sins occurred. I wanted you to go to the book of Numbers for just a moment, to Numbers chapter 25. As we think about during this particular time that uh, Paul is remembering and calling us to remember uh, the warnings from Israel's history, this was really the time in which they were traveling through the wilderness as they were making their way from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. 
So I want us to read here a few verses in Numbers 25, beginning at verse 1 and reading down through verse 9. The Bible says to us here, While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Again, we can see the, uh, the wide-ranging consequences of Israel's sin. But on this occasion, it seems that Israel had committed actual fornication with those who were Midianites, those who were Moabite women, while also at the same time committing this spiritual idolatry, this spiritual adultery, if you will, with their false gods. And that is really the reason why God gave the warning to Israel before they went into the land to say, don't get mixed up with these people. Don't intermarry them. Don't associate with them. Don't allow them to influence you, to cause you to go away from me. But these immoral, sinful actions on this occasion resulted, the Bible tells us here at verse 9 of Numbers 25, it resulted in 24,000 Israelites losing their lives, 23,000 of those on one day. That's a lot of death to have to experience. As we look at our culture, we don't have to look very far again, just like idolatry, to see that we are very much an immoral people as a whole. That, that there's immorality of every kind that is just running rampant in our culture. And certainly to Paul's specific point here, and even what the Israelites were involved in at this particular point, there is certainly immorality of a sexual kind that is just running rampant in our culture today. I think we could safely say that for many Americans, sinful sex is the God of choice. God is the one who created sex. God is the one who created that as a blessing, as a gift for us as His people. But He wants us to enjoy that blessing or that gift within the boundaries of a covenant marriage relationship. But as we know, many Americans that are living around us every day have tried to enjoy the blessing without the responsibilities that go along with that relationship of marriage. There is certainly immorality of all different kinds that is running rampant around us every day. That just has kind of become normal in our culture today. And so as God's people, we must remember who we belong to. Just like the Israelites, God called upon them time after time. And he said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. As we talked about last week about being holy people of God so God has called us to be holy as well. We must remember that we belong to Christ. 
that we do not belong to the world. We do not serve the same Lord and master that the world serves, but we belong to Christ and therefore we must be people who are fleeing immorality of every kind. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in this very chapter. Again, these were many of these Christians that he is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 10 in the church at Corinth. They came out of this kind of culture. They were living these kinds of lives. But I want you to notice some things that he said at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 15. He asked a question here of them and us. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee immorality, which again, in many versions is flee fornication or flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. We must be people who are fleeing sexual immorality, but fleeing all kinds of immorality. Why? Because we belong to Christ. Because Christ has given his life for us on the cross, as we've already remembered this morning. He sacrificed his body so that we can sacrifice our bodies to him and for his cause. Let us be people then who heed history's warning. Let us not be people who are acting immorally in our lives. The third warning as we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is found at verse 9. As Paul goes on to say here about the Israelites, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Some translations, and you may be reading from a translation this morning that uses the word tempt here rather than the word try that the New American Standard uses. But the Greek word, as I understand it, that Paul is using here in this text really is that sense of trying or testing the Lord in some way. Maybe it is a sense of us trying his patience, testing his patience or trying his power and testing his power in some way. But in the example that Paul is giving here, that is exactly what God's people did. Go back once again to the book of Numbers and this time to chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, and I think we can find a number of uh, accounts of the Israelites trying or testing the Lord. But let's look at this one for just a minute. Numbers 21, beginning at verse 4. It says, Then they, went, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. There's that idea of impatience again. <laughs> And that's a whole nother lesson in and of itself, I think. But a good one for us to learn that when we become impatient with God and God's way and God's time in doing things, it often does not come, often does not result in something that is good. Verse five, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. 
So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to this bronze serpent, he lived. As a result, again, of their impatience with the long journey that they were enduring to Canaan, it was a long journey, ironically, that really was the result of what they're doing here in this text. That they were having to go through this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before they got to the promised land of Canaan because they had tested God's power. We're not going to go back and read this text that I have here on the screen from chapters 14 here in the book of Numbers. But you remember the story how the spies were sent into the land of Canaan and 10 of them came back and said, there's just no way that we're going to be able to take this land in spite of the fact that God had already said, I have given you the land. And there were only two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, who came back and said, yes, it, it looks like from our perspective that we are grasshoppers in their sight, that they are giants, that there is no way we're just going to be consumed by them if we try to go in and take the land. But there were Joshua and Caleb who said, even though that's what it looks like, we trust in God. And we're not going to try the Lord's patience and we're not going to test the Lord's power in this because God has already promised us the land. But here they are on this long journey that really was the result of them testing God's power to give them the promised land. And here is now Israel again, impatient with that long journey. And they are complaining about God's provisions. This quarter on Wednesday nights, I'm teaching the middle school class and we are covering a big chunk of Israel's history. In one quarter, we're going from creation to the conquest of Canaan. And a couple of weeks ago, we were in this, this section in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and thinking about the people as they just came out of the land of Egypt. And it was just three days journey that they had gone into the wilderness and they start complaining, we don't have any water to drink. And so God provides for them and they go a little bit further and they complain about not having water to drink and not having food to eat. And God provides for them and they go a little bit further and they're just this constant cycle. They were testing the Lord at every step. In fact, this passage here in Numbers 14 tells us that God said that they have tested me these 10 times. I don't know if it was literally 10 times or he's just using the number 10 to kind of say that they are just have completed their testing and it is just constant. And yes, although even on this occasion that we're reading about here in Numbers 21 that that. Paul is referencing in 1 Corinthians 10, although God did show mercy to his people after they admitted their sin, he first brought punishment upon them. And of course, that's what we read here in Numbers 21. That was death by serpent. Can we do what the Israelites did back then? Can we be people today who are trying the Lord? Can we be people today who are testing God? Absolutely. And there are a number of ways I think that we can do that when we fight against God by insisting that we want to do our own will rather than His will in our life. In a sense, we are testing God. When we repeatedly ignore the responsibilities that we find in His Word that He has given to us and to others, we are testing God. As we'll speak of here in this last warning in just a moment when we gripe and grumble and complain 
about the blessings that God has not given us, when we long to look back (laughs) in the words of Gavin's sermon at the nine o'clock hour this morning, the children of Israel, how often through their history at this particular point in, in their history, they said, let us go back to Egypt where we could eat the cucumbers and the leeks and we had Mead and everything was good. They forgot totally (laughs) that they were slaves there for hundreds of years. But when we gripe and grumble and complain about the blessings that God has not given to us, I believe we can be guilty of this very same sin that Israel often was guilty of and that we are people who are testing God. So the warning from Israel's history for us is don't do that. Do not be a people who test the Lord. And then the final warning here is found back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 at verse 10. And that is simply don't complain. Paul writes here, do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. In scripture, I will say that this certainly is true, that sometimes we do find those whom the Bible, God himself, described as being faithful, righteous people who are bringing some kind of complaint before God. You can think about even Moses himself, as we've talked about him in several of these instances this morning with Israel, that sometimes it was not God saying, I'm ready to destroy this people and I'll make a new people of you and your descendants, but it was Moses himself just getting fed up. And I can understand that. I can understand as he is leading God's people through the wilderness for 40 years that there would be many points in his leadership that he would just throw up his hands and say, I'm done, and complain to the Lord about his own people. David and some of the other psalmists, as you read through some of the psalms, often brought complaints to God about their enemies, about situations and hardships and sufferings that they were having to experience in their life. But I believe that the complaining that Paul is speaking of here in this text in 1 Corinthians 10 is somewhat different. It is a complaint that is connected to being discontent with God himself, that we're not just talking to God about our enemies, our opposition, or about how God's people aren't behaving themselves. But it is a gripe and a complaint against God himself. It is grumbling or was often, the word often used in the Old Testament, murmuring against Jehovah God. And once again, in the example that Paul is using here in this text, this is exactly what Israel did. If you go once again to the book of Numbers, this time to chapter 16, to just remind ourselves of the kind of attitude, the kind of words that the children of Israel, God's people were using even against him. Beginning at verse 41, The Bible says to us there, but on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their face. Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put it in the fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. 
So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on account of Korah. Then Korah returned, Aaron rather returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting for the plague had been checked. There was already sin in the camp. Here in chapter 16 of Numbers, we remember about Korah and his rebellion. But in response to Korah's rebellion against God, and even in response to God's punishment of Korah and his family, Israel here was complaining against the Lord's leaders, as they often did, complaining to Moses and Aaron. And thus, I believe, they were not just complaining against their fellow Israelites, but they were also complaining against Jehovah God himself. And God would have none of that. He sends this plague once again, just like we read about a plague earlier. And the text tells us that it consumed nearly 15,000 Israelites on this occasion. When we think about sin as it is presented to us in the Bible, we may not often think about it in relationship to complaining and grumbling and murmuring against God. Does God care if we are like the children of old sometimes? Does God care if we gripe and grumble and complain as Israel did? That we're not just griping and grumbling and complaining to one another as God's children, but we in essence are complaining and grumbling against God himself. And I believe the answer to that is a resounding yes. Just one passage, one final passage, and then the lesson will be yours In Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, Paul gives this instruction to all of us who are followers of Christ. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul reminds us, as we just spoke of from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are different. We belong to Christ. Our bodies belong to Christ. Our our minds belong to Christ. Our lives, the essence, the totality of who we are as people, all of that belongs to Christ. And I believe Paul was trying to remind these Christians and us that here in this passage, that is exactly true, that we have been called out of this crooked and perverse generation to be lights in the world. And how can we shine as lights if we are known as a people, either collectively or even individually, as those who are just griping and complaining murmuring and grumbling against the life that God has given to us. We of all people ought to realize how blessed we are that not only has God provided for us physically, but God has provided much more for us spiritually. And the consequences, again, of Israel's complaining were great. Let us then heed history's warning. Let us not be a people who complain against our great and good God. Well, the Apostle Paul concludes this text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with one final warning as he gives us that at verse 12. And he says to us, basically, don't think that these things cannot happen to us. Sometimes we look at ourselves and we think, yeah, we're, we're past all of that. 
we, we are advanced in every way in our culture and in our time. And th- those problems that beset the children of Israel don't beset us today. And I tell you what, I kind of got that impression when I was a kid listening to those Bible stories from the Old Testament and thinking sometimes how, how ignorant, how dumb those people were. Why didn't they get it? And yet I find myself sometimes going down the same path that none of us are immune, brothers or sisters. None none of us are above these sins that Israel often committed against God. And so we need to take that final warning to heart that yes, these things can happen to us if we are not diligent in our walk with Him. If you and I today fail to heed history's warnings about these matters, I believe we will suffer the same fate that many Israelites did. Many times, as we've seen today, they suffer death of a physical kind. But for us, we can suffer death of a spiritual kind, that we can be eternally separated from our great God. And God doesn't want that to happen. He has made every provision available to us so that that does not happen to us so that we can end this life here on earth in a right relationship with Him. We can spend eternity with Him, connected to Him. What about you this morning? Do you see yourself here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Is there a warning in this text that you need to heed in your life? Maybe it's not one that we specifically mentioned here from this passage, but it may be another warning of Scripture. And we all need to, to examine ourselves from time to time, to make sure that we are living in a way that pleases God. What about you? Are you a Christian even this morning? If you're not, because of God's grace and mercy and love and patience, you can become one this very hour. We would be happy to baptize you into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins if that's what you need done this morning. Or as a child of God, as we have been reading here from 1 Corinthians 10 and looking back at all these Old Testament texts, these were things that those who were claiming to be God's people were involved in. And these are warnings that Paul is giving to us as the people of God today, not to the world out there, but to us. And it may be as a child of God that you are slipping away from the Lord, that maybe you have even begun to fall away from Him. Would you come back to Him? Would you make sure that your life is right with Him this very hour? Whatever your need might be, if you in any way need to respond to the invitation of Christ, won't you do that now as we stand and as we sing?